Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. Oscar, the New York Film Critics Award, and the Foreign Press Association Golden Globe as Best Picture of the Year. Ben-Hur has been named Best Picture by newspaper and magazine critics in every city in the world in which it has played, including the New York Times, the Boston Daily Record, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Chicago Daily Tribune, the Los Angeles Examiner, the London Daily Telegraph, and Time Magazine. Let me explain something to you. The Emperor is watching us. This is my great opportunity, Judah, and yours too. watching us, judging us. All I need do is serve him. You speak as if he were God. He is God. The only God. He is power. Real power on earth. There is only one reality in the world today. Look to the West, Judah. Don't be a fool. Look to Rome. Rome is an affront of God. Rome is strangling my people and my country, the whole earth. The day Rome falls, there will be a shout of freedom such as the world has never heard before. Thank you. 
All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. I'm your host, Jimbo, and today we will be discussing the great uh, epic movie, Ben-Hur. I am joined, as usual, by these two chariot racers. Kyle Zayner. And the titular tired Terrence, as usual. <laughs> well, um, before we get started, we have had an epic day today. Um, this is the first time for the podcast that we actually went and visited somewhere for the podcast to do some research. Um, we actually went to Crawfordsville, Indiana, went to the General Lee Wallace Study and Ben-Hur Museum, basically. Wonderful place. Wonderful place. Had a great um, time. Yeah. At the end of this podcast, we have a special interview with Larry Parlsberg. I hope I didn't mess your name up, Larry, um, who was the director of the museum, who actually sat down and did a small interview with us um, in between some uh, tours he was doing. So we are very grateful for him. So before we dive too much further in here, Terrence and Kyle, I did prepare a question. Ooh, it's been a while. Which one do you think you would have fared better at? Doing a chariot race, such as we saw portrayed in this movie, Ben-Hur, or as a gladiator competitor in the Coliseum, as we saw in Gladiator? Oh, uh, the real answer is I die in both. (laughs) 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 If if I had to, I'd probably choose the chariot race. (laughs) I'd probably fare better in the gladiator ring. (laughs) I, I, I think I might be able to get out alive in a chariot race. Maybe. Well, you know, I do a lot of driving, so I'm going to say the chariot race, too. Um, because you can always pull that thing over and stop. You can't always just pull over a line. Yeah, yeah. Sit over there. I can always crash and roll. I can, you can tuck and roll. You might live. Yeah. Gladiator, you definitely die. All right, so here we go. We're going to talk about Ben-Hur. This is uh, the number 100 movie, uh, top 100 movie on AFI. It is actually number 100. It is the on the thousand and one things movies you must see before you die. This has over forty scripts. Went through forty scripts and over six years, and it has over one million props that were made. So, Terrence, I'm going to let you go ahead and take it away. And we'll this is going to be different because we got a lot of stuff of information that just came to us today in this adventure we went on. So, Terrence, take her away. All right, we got Ben Hur. Now, this is the 1959 version. Uh, before this one, there was a uh, 1907 version. That was a, uh, I believe it was a, a 10, 15 minute Broadway play. And then there was a silent film that came out in 1927. Uh, 25. 25, that's right. Uh, 1925, that was a silent film. And uh, of the three, we learned that that was the more uh, accurate to the book. But this one was, the one we're covering was... Uh, Sort of like story wise, you know, just theatrically, Hollywood was the the better told story. Yeah, it, but the sound film was more fa- the, faithful. To yeah, the exactly. Well, exactly. it had more stuff to work with and as far as digitally and, and a big know. budget to go with. Yeah, too a very big budget. Uh, so speaking of which, let's go down the list here. So this came out November eighteenth, nineteen fifty nine. Uh, this is surprisingly rated G. Yeah, there were some pretty yeah. gory parts of it. <laughs> so, what's what's the was the PG rating even available at that time? They I added it in. So this 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 particular version of the movie has had multiple re-releases. Mm-hmm. And so usually when something has re-releases, they'll eventually rate it. Not everything gets rated, but some things do eventually down the line get rated. But so we, this, this got rated G, I'm not sure when, yeah. but it has been rated. But we, recovered, we, we covered when the actual rating system came into place because there was a movie that we did specifically 
that installed the uh, the GPG PG thirteen. Yeah, what was well, PG thirteen was Gremlins, I believe, if I remember correctly. That's but nice. we haven't covered Gremlins. There was a movie we covered, and that's why they went to like the R and all that. What movie? Yeah, I can't I, think of it. Off I, the did we do the Indiana Jones movies on this podcast? I can remember. We did one of them so far. I because I, I wasn't on that episode, so I wouldn't know. Right, right Kyle, you're on Google duty while I keep what, reading. Steven Spielberg. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll do the research through my sacred tusks <laughs> on the <on a> phone. <laughs> All right, so we got the budget of fifteen million. If In nineteen fifty nine. Nineteen fifty nine. Fifteen million, which today, if you account for inflation, that's hundred and forty one million dollars. Uh, gross USA. This is what it made gross USA Canada and also worldwide because it only had at least as far as my research goes because we've read sort of contradictory information but as far as the numbers that i can find uh this is all i can find number wise uh we got gross usa and canada which is also the gross worldwide um that it made 74.4 million dollars if you count for inflation that's 699.6 million uh it's opening weekend it only made 2041 241 thousand dollars <laughs> which is about two point two million, if you account for inflation. So yeah. it's, it didn't do good opening weekend, but it picked up speed and then quickly became a well-selling movie. Now we have the box office for nineteen fifty-nine. I don't have the month uh, just because of how old the movie is, but I do have the year box office. So at number one, we do have Ben Hur. So it made a comeback then. It did. Uh, it, it, it at the end of that year. Um, actually, that's. It is surprising because it came at the end of the year. So, you know, we get a November 18th release and then it peaks the box office at the end of the year to top the box office for 1959. Uh, Right under it, we have uh, number two, we have Shaggy Dog. Number three, Some Like It Hot, uh, which we we have covered. Uh, Number four, Operation uh, Petticoat. And number five, Pillow Talk. It's another good movie. Yeah. I have some brief facts here. Um, the MPAA was established in 1969. We started with originally with the G um, G for general audiences, E M for mature audiences, and and uh, uh, R for restricted. Um, also, they had the PG for parental guidance. And the uh, PG-13 wasn't established until 1984. And I believe it was with Gremlins, but I can't see it right here. <laughs> so um, before that, it would have been... It would have been uh, Ben Hur would have been subject to the Hayes product code, which I'm going to do a little more research yeah, on. The Hayes code. Yeah, the Hayes production code. Yeah, the Hayes production code. We have covered Hayes codes in the past. We've done we that covered before. It yeah. Super early in the podcast, we covered the Hayes codes with. Um, Psycho, wasn't it? Psycho. We covered the Hayes codes when we were talking about Psycho. And then I believe it came up a couple more times in some of our, our later episodes afterwards. But. I remember correctly, it's because they showed a toilet, right? Wasn't yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. Was what it was because of the toilet. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, Ben Hur was, of course, made in. This Ben Hur was made in 1959. And so it would have been applied retroactively applied with the G rating. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is actually a little years later. maybe unusual because I would think at least a PG would make more sense, but that's just me. Exactly. <laughs> maybe it'll change in the future. Who knows? But um, that's just that's the brief history of the MPAA. <laughs> Very nice. Thank you, Kyle. You're welcome. This time, <laughs> next time we touch a quarter. <laughs> this was directed by William Wyler, uh, who also directed The Best Years of Our Lives, Roman Holiday, and The Big Country. Uh, writing credits, also, obviously, at this point, goes with Lou Wallace, who we know now an extensive <laughs> bit of information about. <laughs> he also uh, wrote A Tale of Christ, um, A Prince of India. These are some of the other books that he wrote, uh, along with Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur was Ben-Hur the is, It's Ben-Hur, Tale of Christ. Oh, He's also okay. the fair god. That, that's what I was looking for. You got it, you got it. The screenplay was written by Carl... 
uh, Thunberg, uh, Gore Vidal, Maxwell Anderson, and S.N. Berman, and Christopher Fry. Those are all the writers of the screenplay. Um, music was by Mikolos Rosa, uh, who also uh, did music for uh, Spellbound, Double Identity, and The Lost Weekend. We have the uh, director of photography, Robert Strutrees, who also uh, did digital... I am just <laughs> everywhere today. Uh, who, we, we've who, had who, a very long day yeah. of extensive research, <laughs> so, and we are going to give you the best show possible. We're also a little tired. <laughs> it's always when I have just a massive amount of information for whatever we're covering that I just crumble. Exactly. <laughs> we're building suspense, the longing of the heart. You're going to so, love this. Don't worry. He was also director of photography for The Graduate, The Last Picture Show, and The Sting. Other classics in their own rights. <laughs> exactly. Uh, editors, we have John D. Dunning, Ralph E. Winters, Margaret Booth, uh, who was on credit for uh, the editing of this movie. And then finally, we have the producers, who are... There's only one credited producer, and that's uh, Sam Zimblist, who uh, is also one of the ones that, unfortunately, uh, during the production of this film, after leaving the set, he ended up passing away from a heart attack, uh, and he was 54, um, the other producers on this, uh, the uncredited ones, we have William Wyler, Joseph Vogel, and Sol C. Seal. And now the text bags. So this had a couple different releases, um, each one longer than the next. Its original release, we had three hours and 32 minutes. Then the next release was three hours and 39 minutes. And then the, then we have three hours, 44 minutes. Three hours. The UK release was three hours forty-two minutes. The DVD was three hours thirty-four minutes, and then the two thousand five DVD was three hours and forty-two minutes. And I believe those are with with including the intermissions and preludes. If I remember exactly. Then finally, we have sound mix, which is six track stereo Western X recording system. So this was made to be in big theaters, and you'll you'll see that when we get to the prints that they made for this movie. It was one of the uh, original like roadshow movies back in the back in the the, the, the decade where they had those originally. Now that is we don't have those. Sorry, go ahead. No, you're good. Uh, this movie is in color. Uh, its aspect ratio is a very unique aspect ratio. So we got a two point six six by one aspect ratio. That's super eight millimeter, and then. The prints for this movie is also interesting. So you have your normal 35 millimeter prints, so 2.55 by one, but then you have 70 million millimeter prints, which is there's only a handful of 70 millimeter prints. Um, this movie and like 40, at least what I can find, there's 44. There's probably a couple more of recent ones that I uh, uh, couldn't dig up, but uh, the most recent one I found, and I know there's a couple after, but uh, as far as my notes and stuff, uh, the most recent movie to use uh, 70mm prints was The Hateful Eight. Um, then we also have some other notable movies that are uh, like West Side Story, Sound of Music, 2001 Space Odyssey, Tron. Those are some other ones that use that big 70mm print. And you're based, that's when you go to the theater and it's that ultra-wide curved screen. Um, very few theaters in America even still yeah. have them available. So very few yeah. theaters have them, and also it's super expensive to make seventy millimeter print because uh, you're essentially <laughs> you know, you're essentially filming with like three yeah. cameras simultaneously with those kind of lenses and actually getting yeah. that huge aspect ratio done right. And the and equipment it, to actually run to run those three films all at once it's it's all a hassle, but it looks phenomenal. 
Mm-hmm. Finally, we have the uh, camera, so Mitchell lenses, and we got a, I got a bunch of cool information about the cameras that were used in this and a lot of the other stuff, um, which I'll be, you know, spouting off as we go down <laughs> the list of all the information we have. Uh, this laboratory was Technicolor uh, SPA Rome, Italy. So this was edited in Rome, Italy, which is pretty unique. Usually we see it uh, done uh, in L.A., Hollywood. Um, I think we've seen a couple in New York. Uh, yeah, but this film was filmed mostly overseas. So it was, yeah. So it's probably easier to get it. It was also it edited over in Italy. Film length, 6,100 meters. There is a lot of film to go with this movie. And mm-hmm. the... the <laughs> The amount of film they cut from this movie is amazing, and I'll, I'll touch on that later also. Uh, cinematographic process, we're looking at MGM Camera 65 Anamorphic, and finally, printed film format, 35mm, 8mm, and 70mm prints. And that's it for that. And uh, I, Do you think this movie would have worked in black and white? I believe so. But, I mean, obviously... I mean, the 1920 version obviously is black and white yeah, but silent. I'm saying something this big do you think it would have looked nice in black and white um, I'm the kind of crazy person who occasionally just goes full out to actually watch films intentionally black and white sometimes even colorized films and so I think I can say most, almost certainly that film would have worked great even in black and white but the, col- um, the colors were so vibrant it almost reminded me of like Technicolor in a way yeah, yeah it, so. it's a beautiful movie even from a color perspective but also from a black and white from the lighting perspective they did massively do a lot of those shots too of how they do faces and illumination mm. and all those kind of things so it would have worked excellently as a black and white film but as a color film also it's just more of a standard way of looking at film nowadays where I think it looks good but um, black and white would have been totally acceptable I think <laughs> and I think even like in some ways, some shots might even be more enjoyable to some degree if they were black and white. And speaking of enjoying, let's go to what I enjoy, and that's the award! Alright, Academy Awards, USA, 1960. They won a bunch. So, we're Best Picture. Uh, it won Best Actor in a Leading Role, Carlson uh, Heston. Best Actor in a Supporting Role, Hugh Griffith. Best Director, William Wyler. Best Cinematography, color, yeah, Cinematography, Color, Robert Stritz. Best Art Direction, Set Direction for Color Film, uh, William A. Horning. Edward C. Cafnago. Hugh Hunt. Then we have Best Costume Design, Color, Elizabeth Haffenden. Best Sound, Franklin Milton. Best Film Editing, Ralph E. Win- uh, Winters and John D. Dunning. Best Special Effects, A. Arnold Gillespie, R.A. McDonald, and Milo B. Laurie. Best Music, Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture, Mikolos Rosia. And they were nominated for Best Writing Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium, uh, Carl Turnberg. Now we have the BAFTA Awards of 1960, winner of the Best Film of Any Source, which is... That's just, oh yeah, just all over category. Just, <laughs> just <even>. whatever. <laughs> Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, USA 2006. Hmm. Uh, they were nominated for Best Classic Film DVD Release. I was like, I wonder what it's doing in this uh, award category in 2006. Oh, DVD release, that's right. Bambi Awards, 1961. They were nominated for Best Actor International. That's Carlton Heston. Uh, <laughs> it's not Carlton. My bad. Carlton. Well, it, says, it says 
<laughs> you know, that's what it, that, it's Carlton. Yeah, Carlton. Oh. You know, the Fresh Prince dance. Da, da, da. It's not unusual. <laughs> <laughs> Copyright strikes. Carlton. Yeah, that's what I said. You tried. <laughs> David D. Donatello Awards. 1961 won Best Foreign Production and Best Foreign Actor. Uh, then we have Directors Guild of America, USA 1960. They won Outstanding Directional Achievement in Motion Pictures. The Fargo Island Film Festival, 1959. They won Outstanding Artistic Contribution. They were nominated for Best Actor, Best Film. Uh, and then they were also nominated for uh, Best Film in the Golden Train Award category. Golden Globes, USA 1960. They won Best Motion Picture in the Drama Category, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, uh, Stephen Boyd. They also won a special award for uh, Andrew Martin for directing The Chariot Race in Ben-Hur. Uh, and they were nominated for Golden Globe for Best Actor Drama, Charlton Heston. Hey! Hey! <laughs> You guys didn't correct me the first time. I was going to, but you were going so fast. I was like, I, I'm just going to see if he does it again. <laughs> a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> Grammy Awards, 1961. They were nominated for Best Soundtrack, Album, or Recording of a Music Score from a Motion Picture Television. That is a long-winded award title. Uh, IGN Summer Movie Awards, 2011. Nominated for Best Blu-ray. International Film Music Credit Awards. So they won... Uh, for best release, re-release, or re-recording of an existing score. So that's pretty cool. That it Basically, they were able to uh, re-release everything in its quality that it was meant. You know, it was this isn't a movie, given it being an older, older movie, it didn't sort of degrade over time. Like, sometimes they have to do, they have to remaster and uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Things degrade and like entropy kicks in, so it's it's difficult to uh, you know preserve preservation, yeah, yeah, preservation exactly. to actually get those films yeah properly preserved. Luckily, Ben Hur has been you know preserved for the state of time, and <laughs> will hopefully stay that way forever. <laughs> then we well, have the digital market now. Exactly. Yeah, so right. that that was the 2018 International Film Critics Award. Then we have the same award ceremony, but in 2013, uh, where they won uh, best archival release of an existing score. <laughs> We have the Laurel Award. Laurel Awards, nineteen sixty. They won a special award. Doesn't say for what. They were nominated for top male dramatic performance, Charlton Heston. Top male dramatic performance, Stephen Boyd. Yeah. Uh, top male supporting performance, Hugh Griffith. Motion Picture Sound Editors, USA, nineteen sixty. So it's getting a lot of sound awards. Uh, I'm noticing for for the and it was a it was a good score, a very dynamic soundtrack uh, for considering you know the state of the, the decade it was released. Yeah, definitely. exactly. And and the sound editing was was top notch too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's highlighted by this winner of the Golden Wheel Award, uh, best sound editing feature film. That's a new one, ain't it? The Golden Wheel. Uh, well, the, it's, this is motion picture sound editors, which we've seen, but that mm. particular award, the Golden Wheel Award. Um, I mean, we have the Golden editing. Schmooze. The Golden Schmooze. We haven't seen the Schmooze in a while. I know. Uh, this hit the National Board the National Board of Review USA 1959. Uh, they won Best Supporting Actor, Top Ten Films, and uh, won for uh, that directing direction of the Chariot Race once again. Uh, National Film Preservation Board hit that in 2004. New York Film Critics Circle Awards 1959 won Best Film. 
and then they also got nominated for Best Screenplay and Best Director. Online Film and Television Association, 1999, they won for Motion Picture, the OFTA Film Hall of Fame. And finally, the last one, we have Writers Guild of America, USA 1960, nominated for Best Writing American Drama. All right. That's awesome. Yeah, a lot of well-deserved rewards. This is an excellent film, and I really appreciate it. (laughs) Um, Moving on to the casting. We, for the 1959 version of Ben-Hur, we have Carlton, oh no, Charlton (laughs) Heston playing (laughs) Judah Ben-Hur. Carlton Farnett. Carl Farnett, yeah. Um, Go recognize Charlton Heston from such movies as The Ten Commandments, Planet of the Apes, the 1968 version of Planet of the Apes, Soylent Green, The Omega Man, Tombstone, in Midway, Charlton Heston, a legendary actor in his own right, so mm-hmm. also kind of like it wasn't like needs no introductions, but also if you're born after the '90s, then maybe you need an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while, guys. <laughs> Next up, we have Stephen Boyd plays Masala. You might recognize him in movies such as uh, the Fantastic, the, the cult classic Fantastic Voyage, which you just recently watched. I, I just watched that last week for the first time and really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, great film and good actor. And uh, the Bravados, the Oscar, and Genghis Khan. Next up, we have uh, I'm gonna might butcher some pronunciations here, just like Terrence does. I might pull a Terrence on this one, but uh, do it. <laughs> um, Heya Harry plays Esther. Um, you'll recognize her from movies such as Journey Beneath the Desert, The Secret Partner, and Hill Twenty Four Doesn't Respond. No, doesn't answer my my apologies, my correction. <laughs> um, next up, we have Hugh Griffith, uh, classic actor, his own right. Um, he plays Sheik Alderim. Um, you'll recognize him from movies such as How to Steal a Million Dollars, the 1968 version of Tom, 1963, my version, 1963 um, release of Tom Jones, and the movie The Counterfeit Traitor. Next up, we have Jack Hawkins playing Quintus Arius. You'll recognize him from the, such movies as the original The League of Gentlemen, like The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen that got remade later, kind of a more recent release. Um, he's also in Lawrence of Arabia, Zulu, The Third Secret, and Masquerade. Next up, we have Martha Scott playing Miriam. You'll recognize her in movies such as Our Town in Old Oklahoma and the, and the, the Howards of Virginia. Then after that, we have Sam Jaffe playing um, uh, Simon. Got it. Ah. <laughs> How do you spell it? The Simon-itis. I forget. Like, Simon-itis. I had to look at that again and try and get that Simon right. Simon-itis? Simonius, I believe, or something like that. Uh, Here's the key. It's you been just a long take day. a wild guess and, and run with it. Yeah. And then just keep going. <laughs> I mean, you're taking professional I, I, advice from Terrence, okay? Terrence. I guarantee you half the names that I've said confidently, there's somebody on the other end of this podcast going, that's not how you say the you name. Know, you know, Terrence, I see your point, but also I think maybe I'm too far gone the road of admitting I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm just going to, let's go full butcher and Terrence's advice and Simon Zayas. That's what I'm going to say. Simon Dayas. Why not? Uh, you'll recognize him from movies such as The Day the Earth Stood Still, where he played the basically Einstein. And that's one of your favorite movies. That's one of my favorite movies of all time, and I loved him in it. And he basically plays like an Einstein-like character scientist. Um, he was also in the movie The uh, Asphalt Jungle and The Dunwich Horror, another classic um, Lovecraft movie mm-hmm. that I, I appreciate really. Uh, next up, just um, cast, not more related movies, but Kathy O'Donnell plays Tiza, Terza. Then we have Finley Curry playing Balthazar. 
George Ralph playing Tiber- Tiberius. And Kurt Dudley, uh, oh, sorry, that's, that's different. Kurt Dudley's on this film. He turned down the role. <laughs> but that is the cast. Wasn't there me. somebody else, though, that was going to play? Uh, uh, yes, the uh, there also Marlon Brando was uh, possibly offered to play um, Paul Newman, um, but he turned down the role because he wanted to play um, Masala instead. Uh, no, no, Paul, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Marlon was going to play Judah. And then I believe, if I'm looking at the other character, uh, Leslie Nielsen was offered the role to uh, play Masala at some point, but turned down. Hey, which Kyle, I just cannot picture it. I, well, I can, but also it's ridiculous. <laughs> my name is Masala. Surely, my name is Masala. Don't call me Shirley. <laughs> We've an excellent film. Yeah. But anyways, that is the cast of the 1959 version of Ben-Hur. All right, so we're going to talk about this movie. I'm going to get a little facts at the beginning. Then we're gonna. It's basically broken down into three acts. Um, act one... I'll say is the uh, the, the history between uh, Judah Ben Hur and Masala mm-hmm. and their family, um, their all the way, all yeah. the way until uh, the accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, Act two will deal with the slavery slash uh, boat ship and his, I guess you call it adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, and then three and the biggest one will probably be the chariot race, which is one of the greatest cinematic things to ever hit the movies. Yeah. So just as a way of introduction. Um, there were over 300 sets built, which required over five years of research and 14 months of labor. Um, that just sounds terrible. But it's very well done. Yeah. This seems like an absolutely grueling task that's also made by a lot of passionate people. They did an amazing job, but I couldn't imagine tackling all the problems in this. Uh, all I, the Not problems in this movie, but I mean the problems to solve. To yeah, make this movie I, I imagine this yeah. is one of those movies where, uh, and this is sort of the caveat of... of making certain great movies, especially ones with high budget that have a lot of practical effects and stuff, it is a pain. And I'm sure nobody enjoyed their time while they were doing this, but the end product is amazing. That happens a lot where, you know, a a great piece of work comes out and no one particularly enjoyed doing the thing because it was so difficult and so, you know, blood, sweat, and tears kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, the they enjoy that the fact that the end product was something that a lot of people enjoyed. And, and I've got it in the notes somewhere. I don't know if I have that or not, but there's something that I read that the, they had a million props, but they hired, like, I think it was like four years before, like 10,000 potters from Italy or something to start doing all that pottery and all that. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. There, there's a lot of hands in this, and I, I even got a bit of information just to show how difficult it was. And this is, this is post-production, so... As you know, this was done in 65, 77, 70 millimeter prints. And because there was so much film, it was so heavy. It took four men with steel bars to move them. And quite often, William Wyler would just ended up using a crane. <laughs> just bring, bring <laughs> the crane. Bring a crane to move all the film that they had to save time. It's, it's crazy. Ridiculous. And they were on a tough schedule because they had people flying out there just checking yeah. on them and all that. Um, several times during this film, you'll see uh, Ben Hur, Judah, touch the uh, door frame, a box on the door frame of his house. This is a mezuzah. It's a case containing a passage from the Torah, which was Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, and uh, 11, 13 to 21, which the Jews traditionally fixed their door frames of their houses as a constant reminder of God's presence. Uh, a lot of the actors, including Stephen Boyd, who were playing the Romans, actually wore dark contacts lenses, so their eyes appeared brown. And uh, Masala's contacts bothered him so much that he had terrible pain forcing him to reschedule scenes so he could rest his eyes. We've seen that a lot of times a where lot, they're forced yeah. to wear contact, you know, where some Usually people just... it, it, with contacts in, in film, there's 
there's always issues, no matter what decade. It, they, it's, it's, it it's, it's, I mean, you think about how sensitive your eyes are. Everything's an irritant when it comes to contact with your eye, so yeah, it's, exactly. just, it's always going to be slightly difficult to adjust to. Even the best actors struggle with that. So, you know, give credit to like you know anybody <laughs> who deals with it. Yeah, especially, yeah, <laughs> right. So basically, this story is set in Jerusalem at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, and that ten square block that set that they they did actually is historically accurate to the city of Jerusalem. So a lot of a lot of time was spent making sure everything was right, which is great. We want to see that in a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically you have, we're going to talk about the first act right here. We're going to go right into it. We're basically Ben-Hur and uh, Masala has moved up in the ranks of the government. Um, what would you say? He's not the governor yet. What, what would you say he is? Like the, he's more of the regent. Like, because uh, it's, like it's, it's more commander of to some degree. Yeah, yeah. Because it's more of a occupation. I wouldn't so much say that because it, it was the Roman occup, occupation of of Jerusalem, so it was more of like he's the regent, not so much like a you know yeah. I have Irish to brush up on my yeah, yeah. hierarchy to actually yeah, find out his position. And, right. and more yeah. or less, you know, he's the military commander that's in charge of that territory. But he was excited because the governor was coming, and he wanted to make sure that everything was right for the governor. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, he's the guy you send before you send the governor. That's, yeah, that's, that's, and everything better be in, in shape. Exactly. When I, like, like yeah. when Lord Vader came on the Death Star, our Emperor's coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. But then the general comes after him and all that kind of stuff. Right. That's the kind of that's the kind of position he had. Masala is the Darth Vader of the Bender. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> So, um, basically, the song is trying to get everything together, and uh, Ben Hur has came back from I forgot where he was at. Do you remember where he was at? He was away, but he came to see Masala, and they're, they're like catching up and all that, you know. And 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 Masala is basically wanting Ben Hur to join him, bring the Jews along with them. He's like, you know, they they they're resisting, but if somebody of your hierarchy and your house name. Would stand up for or tell him it's okay to come follow the Romans. Yeah, and he's like, we won't. More we or less, won't he was bow like, down. We won't. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, here's what he more or less was. He's like, I know you're a non-confrontational man and you don't want violence. And Ben Hur's like, yeah, yeah, totally get that. And uh, and then he was like, okay, what I need you to do is if you hear anybody talk about any kind of rebellion, I need you to rat them out, more or less, yeah. right? You're like he's like, I just need you to rat out everybody who we might have a problem. And he's like, with. they'll yeah. listen to you. And he's like, talk I'm, to I'm not gonna do that. Like yeah. I, I have no problem speaking out against the, violence, which the, I yeah. will do, but I won't. I'm not just. Well, that's like, what turned into like people. His, his initial request was more for him to be like outspokenly submit to the Roman occupation, right. and then later when he kind of uh, very. Uh, like I need you to be an informant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then, then later, kind of demands he become an informant for these, you know, eventual rebel sympathizers, something like that. And even then, like he didn't do. Uh, I don't say. I don't think he did a, a as good as he as good as Masala wanted of submitting to the Roman occupation and like uh, persuading other people to to submit, which is understandable because obviously he didn't want to. <laughs> yeah. But you know, and sometimes, and then later he demanded to be an informant, which he declined to do. Right. And then we go more further into the plot, which I'll let you guys cover. <laughs> so then. Um, Masala goes visits Ben Hur's family, and he's like, "Oh, I remember this place. This is where I grew up. Over here, we ran around and played over here, and all that. You know what mm-hmm. I mean?" Yeah. And then basically, he's like, "I'm not doing it." You know what I mean? So, fast forward a little bit, if you will, um, the governor's coming, and everything has to be perfect. So, um, and what we should point out is this is called the Tell of the Christ because this is centered around the time of Christ, and he is seen throughout the movie, but only from behind. Yeah. Uh, and Joseph, his dad, because uh, there's the where they're working in the wood shop, you know, and the the Romans are coming down, you know, yeah. and he's like, you see Jesus and Joseph or whatever. It, it's it's almost like like 
Christ in this movie is almost like a force of nature in a way where like the the story is about Ben Hur, but the world is changing around him because of Jesus Christ um, right. being born and the acts he's taking around the world. Right. You know, that's what seems to be the kind of the, the situation in the movie as I see it. It's like the the, the story behind the story. Yeah, the story behind the story. The, the, world, the world is changing around Ben Hur. He doesn't realize it till the end that like his life has been um uh change in a way that he didn't understand until the end of the movie by Jesus Christ, even though he didn't realize it. Right. So, yeah. Uh, so, basically, the, now we're up to where the governor's coming, and they've got all the armies and all their garb and all that, and Ben-Hur and his sister go up to the top of this house to get a catch a view. Mm-hmm. And, they're, you know, his sister's excited. She's leaning over, and just as the governor's coming, a slab of these old tiles fall off the roof. And crashes down, almost hitting the governor. And it kicks him off, I do believe, doesn't uh, it? I believe it, 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 it hits the horse, startled, it buckles the, up, the, and the he falls yeah, off. Yeah, the horse yeah. buckles, and yeah, he falls. Um, a great piece of little foreshadowing too, because I love like the, the very first time his sister um, touches the tiling, and actually, as soon as she lets go, it shifts down like an inch. Mm-hmm. And then later, they come back to the scene where she actually she goes touches it again, and then immediately falls and hits the governor head. Brilliant little use, actually, get practical effects of bringing it down just a little bit, so you know, like, oh, it's unsteady when you rewatch it, and then you see it the next time where it fully falls. So it's like it's it's good good signaling good right. filmmaking. So basically, Benner's like, oh no, he's like, get yeah. out of here. Amelia so realizes like this is gonna go bad. Yeah. <laughs> so they go downstairs and they're banging on the door. Open up, open up, open up, and 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 Ben-Hurst, don't say anything. You were never up there, whatever. So they come in, and uh, here comes Masal and him, and, and the, or the soldiers come in and says, who did it? He's like, it was an accident. You know, if they basically arrest Benner. Mm-hmm. And uh, Masala comes in. He's like, Masala. He's like, it was an accident. You know, the roof came down. And he's like, what about these two? He's like, take them. Because you can tell he's upset that Ben Hur did not follow what he wanted him to do yeah. from long ago. It's holding a grudge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he said, like, the, he sees this as an opportunity, even though he knows Ben-Hur is innocent. Right. You know, but he sees it as an opportunity, like, if I punish Ben-Hur and then punish, you know, his family, then Maybe I make pe- the, people yeah. will fall in line. I establish that I have a iron-willed authority and have zero remorse right. when it comes to my, my subjects. Right. You know. And what I liked about that is the reason you know that's true, because he goes up to the roof, mm-hmm. and he, he leans over, and another tile falls. Immediately falls down. You're, you're like, oh, well, he knows, so he knows. Yeah, you know, he clearly, yeah, like, even... Even if like even if he didn't go to the roof, he would still he could still infer like Judah wouldn't do this. But even then, he gets that physical proof basically of evidence that like saying like these tiles are unsteady and stuff like that. So like, yeah, he completely you know he's entirely within his right to be certain that Ben Hur didn't commit this crime. Yeah, you know? and I think he and does know he didn't do it. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. But he still he capitalizes on that just to secure his role that he's you know a, a firm um, uh, authority that will discipline anyone even because he's also friends. trying to climb the ranks himself exactly right. yeah right so and, and not only that but what's the governor going to say if hey this happened on my watch you know what and I mean he did yeah. nothing about yeah. it oh, it was an life. accident when right. I got injured what you know, right yeah. on the day that I arrived really, really. <laughs> I think it's an assassination <laughs> attempt is what you're thinking yeah yeah so basically yeah. Ben Hur is now thrown in jail. His uh, sister and mother are thrown in jail. His it sister and the slave. Oh, yeah. 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 His slave. His sister and the slave are thrown in jail. Uh, oh, yeah, his mother, too. His mother, yeah, too. Right. Yeah. yeah, I forgot. Because he's the, the slave is like, no, no, no. And he's like, yeah, he kept two. <laughs> That's right, yeah. So now Ben-Hur Sorry, is... not funny. <laughs> Ben-Hur is being brought... Where's he going? Before the go- Where's he going? Do they have him in handcuffs and they, he breaks they, away? They put him in a holding area while they separate him from his sister, his mother, and his slave. And uh, they, they keep him in like a holding cell. And then when they say they're going to take him down to the pits immediately without even talking to Masala, he then attacks the guard 
guards and then um, runs through the um, building to reach Masala. Right. And he picks up that spear, man. And yeah. Masala's yeah. Masala's like, he ain't going to do nothing to me. He tells all the guards to get out. It's like, he ain't going to do it. And even though we've seen earlier in the movie, he could throw that spear perfectly oh, where he yeah. wants yeah. to. So Masala yeah. knew he's not playing around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically, Masala's like, look, you don't want to do this. Where you, you got nowhere to go. Yeah. He's like, you kill me, and they'll be in here, and you'll never see your family again, basically. Well, no, yeah, he, like, even more gruesome out. threat. He like he said, like, you know, your your mother and your sister will be held on crosses in front of you while you die. So he has to watch their right. dead bodies as he himself is dying. As a the you know as as I'm sure you know many Christians are familiar with the cross punishment, how brutal those are. Having to watch your family members endure that while you yourself endure that. Um, very gruesome threats. Right, right. <laughs> um, so basically, we have Ben Hur. He puts the spear down and they, they grab him. So now we're getting ready to come up to Act Two, as we like to call it, or as I like to call it, which is the slavery slash adoption. Uh, uh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I, I wasn't going to correct you. Yeah, the slavery slash adoption. Did we cover all our, our stuff for Act 1? I, I, I didn't have much for Act 1. That was about all I had. A lot got of it. it's Act 3, <laughs> of course. That's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I got a couple things for Act 2, so I was going to throw those in here real quick. So basically now Ben Hur's on a, a slave ship, Rowan. You know, like the, and what was really cool today that we saw in that museum is they had one of the little, uh, me and Kyle was in the, the little back room, and in one of the cases they had one of the little dummies that was probably about six to eight inches tall. That was part yeah. of the ship scenes. Yeah, yeah, right about Very there. Cool. Small little rubber model looked really kind of impressive, and uh, yeah, part of the original sets they made for that ocean battle, the naval naval combat, yeah. and it was really well done. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of that, one of the models of the Roman ships uh, was on display at the amusement park Worlds of Fun in Kansas City, Missouri. It was outside and exposed to the elements for many, many years. So that's really cool. If any of our listeners has a picture of that, and they went there from Kansas City, uh, and it, they had a picture that I'm sure it's probably destroyed by now. But if they had a picture, that'd be pretty <laughs> yeah. cool to see. But so, if there's any anywhere remains, it's still worth keeping, you know, keeping in memory. And um, so, a nice bit of realism in any kind of bitch budget film: the raft that Judah and Arius leaves behind when saved at sea is seen gradually drifting away within the picture frame during the first scene of the rescue ship. So it's kind of like a continuation, like, hey, the raft's going away, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, Great continuity in the film, right. still, even like, you know, especially for the time, all the more impressive. So, yeah. you know. so, Kyle, why don't you tell us, the slave ship was attacked by who? The, wasn't Macedonians, I believe? I think so. Yeah, I believe, well, there wasn't, uh, uh, well, it was their initial attack, the Macedonians, I believe it was the Macedonians, if I'm wrong, but this will be very embarrassed. But I believe it was the Macedonians. Were <laughs> you watched it four times. <laughs> I'm going to keep saying Macedonians and really hope it still is. But I believe it is the Macedonians were causing trouble along the Roman fleet's trade routes. And so the um, the Roman uh, general, uh, his name Quintus Arius, was then tasked with fleeting a fleet of Roman ships to destroy the Macedonian fleet. And in that battle, so they were the initial attackers on the Macedonian fleet, and then a Mas- and then a Macedonian ship uh, crashed into, well, intentionally rammed um, his Roman sh- his Roman ship, for which he was able to escape from because his uh, chain was left uh, unhooked. Right. Yeah. Right. And I thought it was really interesting the part where the guy was playing the jump, the the guy aborted uh, the the thing, and he's like, "Was this one been giving you trouble?" He's like, "Eh." And, you know, he's like, "He won't no more or whatever." And then mm-hmm. they do that pounding drum. He's like, "Row harder, left, right." Yeah. You know, the the drum beat would by the drum beat. You could yeah. tell how they were supposed to row, which I thought was very interesting too. Yeah, it was a great way of exemplifying like how hard I mean that kind of task and, would and, be too. Um, what was his name? Aries. Yes, uh, Quintus Aries. Yeah, he saw something in Ben Hur too. Yeah, because he could see that you know he was just watching him as he was rowing and everything. So 
when Ben Hur decided to save his, he's like, why were you unchained? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He basically saw something in Ben Hur that he knew he wasn't going to escape, but he could be a possible an ally. I think you know what I mean? Yeah, so clearly, like seeing something special about him to some degree, like even like in the kind of the parts and like this is this is this is a film of divinity and religious significance to them. So like the idea that he has a almost a spiritual awakening just in the presence of Ben Hur to the point where he even doesn't really understand why he knows that Ben Hur is an important character right. in his life going to be. So the ship you know. gets crashed. They get picked up. Arius is. Uh, fellow crew picked up he said Ben-Hur saved me basically comes down to the point where Arius adopts Ben-Hur yeah which is saying something because he gives him this ring and all that you know and, and this is all in the span of around uh, he's actually stuff. like they, they've kind of later mentioned it but he's actually this this whole slave uh, point in his life is a period of about four years roughly right. from um, being taken down to working the slave sh- working the sh- working the ships to um, being being freed by Quintus Arius and adopted by Quintus Arius. Right. And he's like, look, you can roam around my house all you want and all that. You know, he gave him responsibility too. Basically as a son. Yeah, um, if li- you will. literally. Yeah, well actually he did say, I believe, if I remember correctly, he, he served about three years or I think it was either two or three years, three years on the Roman ship and then as soon as they got back, he later had him... He, um, the Roman Empire, the the Caesar had him, um, had him bequeathed upon Quintus Arius' responsibility as his own personal slave, and then he and Quintus Arius had him do chariot races during that time. But that's seen off camera. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why not seen off camera, shown off camera, and later sent in the speech that Quintus Arius made him do chariot races and then adopted him as a son later on. So to establish that, like even like. Even before, uh, it, I believe it's implied that Judah had some experience, a lot of experience of horses beforehand. But then later, he's made an actual chariot racer during off camera, and that experience where he goes in the third act. Now, now I have a question: Did he ever officially accept the to become his son? Because remember when he says he brings him up to that rooftop or whatever, and he's going to give him the ring. I think he says, "Look, you, you make me proud. I want you to be my son." He's like, "Well, what I need to do is I need to go back to Jerusalem." I don't know. Did he ever officially ever become a son? He so, does. So, so, like, well, there's a whole ceremony thing where he accepted, um, and he wore the ring, and um, he does actually wear the ring up until, you know, he gets home and and you know declares it, yeah that he's now renounce or he's renouncing it, that name and then reclaiming his old name. But at the time, I, I do believe he accepts it. Yeah, he he does always own it. You know, he yeah. doesn't. You know, like the 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 formality of adopting him officially is done by Quintus Arius. So, like in like from the, in the eyes of Rome, he is the son of Quintus Arius always, even if Ben Hur would decline it. But doesn't um, that also make him a free man? Then yes, it does yeah. make him a free man. So he is freed of his slavery, and he is made the son of Quintus Arius in the eyes of Rome, and um, so he is his own free man at that point. And he does um, he does he does see Quintus Arius as an adoptive father in his own eye, even if he still sees him. Himself as his own man and not necessarily of the Quintus Aries name necessarily, but he's still like you know for all intents and purposes he is his son now to a degree, yeah. right? And so basically, it's come to the time where Judah Ben Hur has decided he's going back home. He mm-hmm. he 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 really wants to find his mom and sister because he thinks they're still being held captive or whatever. Remember, mm-hmm. and he's like he tells him he's like look he's like he's like I'm going back. And uh, part uh, we didn't um, mention this in the act of one, but even when the um, when Masala um, finally makes him a slave and sends him off, um, Ben Hur swears that he will have his uh, vengeance for revenge, right. and that he will actually come back and say and he he never lose sight of of that goal, even as he's a slave. It's part of like his journey that he always maintained his own faith that he would in some way 
get back be get back and have his vengeance or you know find a way to you know make right as the wrong that has been done to him um even if that kind of changes to be less about vengeance and more about um you know growing in his own personal faith right <clears throat> so basically ben-hur now arrives back in jerusalem mm-hmm. um and it, how does he come across the saudi prince or the Saudi guy, I, remember? I believe he's resting along the trees, and then um, the uh, the I believe it's supposed to be one of the three the, three wise men. I forget. It's supposed to be one of them. It was comes across it, him. It, well, how it initially how their initial interaction went was uh, he was having problem wrangling his horses, and then Ben Hur comes and helps calm the horses, and then they start having a conversation about it. And he's like, "Yo, these are my babies." <laughs> and then, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. well, that one guy was trying to race him around that track too. Remember? That's what like, it was. Okay, that's what it was. So. Yeah. They were having trouble controlling the horses around. He's like, well, you're doing your turns all wrong. Like, these are these types of horses, so you need to control them like this. And then that had sparked his interest. So then they had a conversation, and then he was trying to get him. He's like, why don't you just train my horses? Yeah. Because <laughs> you know what you're doing. Yeah. Um, well, also, there's a there's an intermediary to some degree, because I believe, I, I forget the character's name off the top of my head, but it was the, the character who met Jesus Christ at his at his birth and now is looking for him as an adult, because he could be an adult now. And that's he, right, because he was asking questions. Yeah, and, and like, he kind of serves as an intermediary between Ben-Hur and the Sheik, kind of uh, uh, explaining some of the Sheik's customs to Ben-Hur to make sure they have a, uh, a pleasant uh, meeting, basically, at first. Yeah. And ensuring those things kind of go forward. So that's kind of like your initial kind of meeting that... The this character works as an emitter, in emitter, it, the word, in emitter <laughs> between them. <laughs> so you. now we're up to the point where um, basically we're going to go into Act Three, which is probably the, the biggest part of the movie. Well, actually, we probably went to an intermission here at some point. That, so well, yeah. We, so now uh, we're going to go into Act Three, and um, Ben Hur has now become a really, really good chariot racer. Yeah, um, and so you see, he, he the, made a name for himself right. in Rome. Well, well, but but Masala doesn't we're, know this. We're going too far. We're, well, okay, no, you can tell me when you're going to go. Never mind. You're yeah, gonna, yeah. So Masala doesn't understand know this because a Saudi guy goes to him. Mm-hmm. He's like, "Hey, I'll bet bet you, you know, some oh, sort of yeah, yeah. odds that a Jew he's, could, he's like, could yeah. defeat the Roman." Yeah. Right? He's like, "Well, would you take?" Well, I forgot what the exact bet was. Of it. Right? Mm-hmm. And it was basically an unbelievable amount of money that this guy's betting. Yeah, yeah. a ridiculous sum. Some of them. They all scoff at him, and then he says how much he's bringing to the table, and everybody's like, "Oh, yeah. this guy's serious." <laughs> and then even Masala was like, uh, and then he goads him in by saying, "Like, oh, well, I mean, if you're saying that you guys can't, if the Roman be, people aren't proud, <laughs> right?" You know, Exactly. That was the funny part, man. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's been about four weeks since I watched this. You know Same what I mean? Man. So I, I know Kyle's more brushed up on it. So if we're mixing some names up or some events. I, I'm trying this. to make sure I keep the order right. But actually, you were right in the order. I just I thought you were about to jump the gun, but you didn't. No, no, no. I wasn't yeah. going to go that far. <laughs> uh, so now this big race is coming up. And and is this when – when does he reveal – Ben-Hur reveal that he is the chariot racer? Ben-Hur sends a gift of – I believe it's a – I think it's a short sword. He sends like a, a very decorative short sword that he gifts to Masala as a random kind of like postage mail sent like thing. It's like we got a uh, oh from the son of Quintus Ares. We received a gift, and so he gives and so a, a post uh, basically a, a slave or a postwork gives him the gift, and then Masala opens up like this is a fine gift. I can't believe this person never met. And then Ben Hur, who's um, um, basically cast in shadow right now at the moment it's like actually you are wrong you have met me before and then he comes oh, yeah, forth yeah, and yeah. announces 
you haven't been her. <laughs> I am the son of Quintus Arius. And then he tells the story that, you know, I was a slave for Quintus Arius, but I saved his life. And then he adopted me and I became royalty. <laughs> Which, man, so, what a baller move. So, <laughs> so basically, uh, he can't do anything to him. You know, I mean, that's the beauty of yeah, it. You know what I mean? Like, imagine throwing like, jail. Imagine Masala's perspective like, your worst enemy, you sent him off to be a slave, and he comes back richer than you. And you're just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and not only that, man, but he is buffed now because I, he was rowing them ships and everything exactly. you know what I mean he went out and got jacked so now biggest Mas- flex in 50s films <laughs> so, so now Masala knows that Ben-Hur is the chariot race for the Saudi yeah. guy uh, I forgot for the, for the Sheik uh, I can't think uh, of the Sheik's name uh, Ilderim I believe Ilderim. Yeah. Sheik Ilderim so uh, you can tell that Masala is like eh. He's kind of worried, but he's like, I can still beat him. You know what I mean? Because isn't he uses the horse that because Ben Hur gifted him a horse earlier in the movie? Remember? Yes, I believe he does use a horse in the race, but also he uses. Um, Masala also feels confident because he uses a, um, a Roman chariot, which is um, basically has the uh, uh, the spike the spike wheels, basically yeah. a, basically an illegal weapon. <laughs> <laughs> Masala knows he's going to win because he's basically cheating. He is the Sabolba. <laughs> oh, yeah. the pod racing. He's the guy who has the car that's. 10 times more than the other car. For some reason he wins every year. I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of um, a solid game plan. <laughs> so now the chariot race is set to begin. And before we jump into that, we'll cover, let's cover um, yeah, so much about episode. the chariot race. Yeah. So, yes. Starting with, well, we'll start with the, with the bad so then we can sweeten it all up with it. Yeah. Else. Because the, sadly, a lot of horses died during the filming of this yeah. movie. Um, 150 to be exact. Well, there might even be more. Uh, that we don't know. If those 150 at least. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, you'll hear uh, Larry, uh, the director of the museum, talk about some of that uh, later on in his interview. Um, the chariot race required 15,000 extras on a set required on 18 acres of a backlot at Sincita Studios outside of Rome. Tour buses visited the set every hour. 18 chariots were built, with half being used for practice, and the race took five weeks to film. Yeah. And not only did it take five weeks to film, but just this scene alone took a million dollars and required more than 200 miles of racing to complete. It is almost impossible to understate just how immense the task of filming the chariot race was, and this entire film, more broadly speaking, but just even the chariot race itself. It's just like... Could you imagine taking yeah. on this kind of project? Because you, you, have, you have to, and not only that, you but have like, to train you know, all the horses. That's true. Yeah, uh, you have to train all the house, the stand actors, everything like that. Have to keep people safe. Like, yeah, and like all the dead horses. And like, and then like just getting like getting the food for fifteen hundred people every day. You're only gonna get all those extras. Make sure they're in the right makeup, right outfits, all those things. Like, there's thousands upon thousands of decisions that have to be made every single day you're filming so it's like oh, it's an insanely it, it's an insane project it's amazing anything gets it done in the world let alone this movie and, and the reason why they were able to amass so many extras is because at the time uh, economic conditions in Italy were pretty poor so they were like hey we're hiring X amount of extras and a bunch of people jumped on it they actually had to cap people at 1,500 extras because there are so many people who are trying to be an extra on this film mm-hmm. uh, because on uh, June 6th uh, more than 3,000 people were seeking work and they they had to be turned away because they were all trying to, you know, do this extra work. And um, there was actually a, a riot at one point where uh, they were throwing stones and assaulting uh, the set gates until the police arrived and finally dispersed. Oh, so it was just like so. biblical times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then on the morning, <laughs> the stoning, you got half of me right there. You're saving money. 
And uh, 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 some of the other things that happened were dynamite charges were used to show the chariot wheels and axles splintering for effects and stuff. Um, and also when uh, Masala's uh, wheel attacked other chariots, um, three lifelike dummies were placed in key points in the race uh, to give the appearance of men being run over by chariots. Right, and I got a lot more about that, too. Yeah. Positively brutal to watch, too. Uh, by the way, the sum wagered against Masala and the Sheik was a 4-1 to odds on a 1,000 talents, which is equivalent to today about $700 million. <laughs> so, he, he so, yeah, he's no, not. He wasn't messing around. You know, as they as uh, they'd say today, that's chic money. <laughs> <laughs> the chariot scene alone cost about four million dollars, or about one fourth of the entire budget. Yeah, which, it shows. It does. Yeah, you can see every penny on screen. For um, during the <laughs> making of the Ten Commandments, Charlton Hessen had learned how to handle a two horse chariot, but when he arrived in Rome. He instantly began lessons on four-horse chariot racing with the film stunts coordinator, Yakima Canute. Unlike Stephen Boyd, he only had two weeks to do. Charles <laughs> Aston got there early, so he got a little bit more time. But can you imagine the pressure and the blisters and oh, all that's yeah. going on? He said his hands were like... Here's, here's another... And so I, I kind of spoke on it when you know we opened up the uh, the podcast in the beginning when I was you know, talking about the um, just information about the movie. But, but back to cutting... For this film, cutting cutting the film for this, so the chariot race had a two sixty three to one cutting ratio. That means for every two hundred and sixty three feet of film, only one foot was used. That's crazy. Uh, probably the highest for any seventy millimeter sequence ever filmed. Yeah, you're like that's insane. You're and literally doing away just thousands upon thousands of dollars. Yeah. No, no, it was like no. a million per something, wasn't it? A million per. Uh, for real? Or, yeah, yeah, no. Well, seventy millimeters expensive. I thought I gave that to you. Um, how much it was? But I, I don't have. Oh, let's see. Oh, I'll try and find. I, I do know that a lot was writing on this film for MGM because this. So this was a MGM production, and uh, obviously this was this was a massive film with a massive budget, and it was a huge gamble by the studio itself to save itself from bankruptcy because they were on the verge of bankruptcy if this movie didn't make it. They would have tanked. MGM wouldn't have been a thing. Uh, but the gamble paid off, and obviously we know that it made you know $75 million by yeah. the end of the year. Oh, I forgot to tell you this. I, I, I wanted to mention this because I can see Kyle doing this. Are you ready? During the 18-day auction of MGM props, costumes, memorabilia that took place in May of 1970 when new studio owner Kirk Kerkorian was liquidating the studio's asset, a Sacramento restauranter paid... $4,000 for a chariot used in this film. And this would be Kyle. Three years later, during the energy crisis, he was arrested for driving the chariot on the highway. Can you imagine go like, we came home the interstate day, can you imagine looking over and seeing a chariot just chariot going by? Going <laughs> oh, man. Um, Hilarious. Uh, after a few days of shooting, Andrew Martin discovered the most effective way to shoot in the arena would be to have the cameras right in the midst of the race. Uh, so that basically having a camera car that moved with the chariots. He also noted that the best shots on the curves were done using a specifically built camera chariot with rubber tires. So we had a camera chariot. Yeah. Um, the chariot race was shot MOS without sound. This was added in post-production when the decision was also made to not have any music throughout the sequence. And I just noticed that. There was no music throughout that whole thing. It was all just the, the horses. Just the horse. Yeah. Yeah, I, horse I, I do have some information about the cameras that they were uh, when they were shooting that particular race. So they were using the 65 millimeter cameras 
uh, he had three to shoot that race. Uh, a larger format film uh, proved to be an issue, so the standard close-up lenses, 35mm photography, was 100mm. So they had to do some trickery with the lenses and whatnot, and uh, it became, in the widescreen process, a 200mm lens, uh, which could not be focused closer than 50 feet. So Morton... Uh, the director of photography had to use a 140 millimeter lens requiring he and his crew to move closer to the dangerous action of the race. So in short, what all that technical jargon means is they're the lenses that they had available for their cameras in order to get the best shots, they had to be in the thick of it. Well, also during the sh- a shot of the chariot swinging around the large curve, the chariot swinging around the large curve of the uh, arena, Two of the vehicles smashed into the cameras, which were fortunately protected by wooden barricades. Nevertheless, production was held up for small repairs and testing on the cameras. No cast crew or horses were badly injured in the mishap. So it could have been a lot worse. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure it was still very expensive. (laughs) Uh, For some sequences in the chariot race, some of the chariots uh, had three horses instead of four. This enabled the camera car to move in closer. So that's another way they got around that. With the yeah, the fourth horse is implied to be there, but in reality, <laughs> you're in, you're kind of inside that horse's. Yep. <laughs> you, you are that horse. You are the horse. Uh, the, horse chari- the, the chariot arena was built by more than a thousand workers beginning in January of '58. According to some reports, it was uh, over two thousand feet long by sixty-five feet wide and covered eighteen acres, the largest single set in motion picture history for that time. Repeatedly, forty thousand tons of white sand were imported from Mexico for the track. That's a lot of sand. <laughs> uh, stuntman Cliff Lyons worked as a stuntman and chariot driver in both this film and the original Ben-Hur, A Tale of Christ from 1925. Oh, wow. That's really cool. And I also think the the lady, I forget her name, Mary Mary or May something, she was in there too. They were the two actors that did that. Um, so we already had that. We talked about that. Um, well, here's something that's interesting. So yeah, th- this is how grand the, the chariot race is. When film students are given a tour at the Panavision facility, uh, they're basically shown this race in full 70 millimeter ultra Panavision just to showcase like how grand this is. Oh, it's going, about the size. They're coming. They're coming for us. It's going to get masala. Run, Terrence, run. <laughs> it's going to get masala. <laughs> so uh, that, that, that's how grand sort of the, this this scene was to film, that it's still to this day shown to film students in its 70 millimeter print in the Ultra Panavision screen, um, which, by the way, have we like we mentioned before, that's not too many places you can view uh, a movie in 70 millimeter prints. Yeah, I'm looking at the price for actually film reels, like the stuff that like you can still buy today, which is actually just film reels, and they're like hundred dollar minimum for like reels that like or like like seventeen hundred dollars for extremely rare like Star Trek three trailers and yeah. seventy millimeters. So uh, it's hard to get seventy millimeters nowadays, especially and they're expensive then too. While they were working on the main set for the chariot races, um, then an identical track was constructed next to the track to train the horses and the drivers, and also lay out camera shots. So. I'm sure it wasn't all up to date and pretty. It was probably just here, here's dirt. <laughs> Go take care of it. Um, let's see. So when, when I was also talking before about some of the heartache that uh, this was to film, a lot of it was because they were outdoor filming. Um, at one point, they were having trouble with the lighting. So they actually had to wait until later in the year where they shot in December uh, because the days were shorter and they can get closer to the horizon sooner. 
and then try to get as much filming done in that time time span as they could. Uh, another huge issue they had along with the, the zooming and everything was um, the lenses they had could only f- fixate on one subject and not two. So a lot of the times they had to figure out how to uh, split focus uh, the cameras in order to get two different people. And there's a couple different techniques that they used in order to get everybody into focus when they had more than one subject in view. Right. Um, ben Hur, basically, he, the, the director had a hard time getting him to show emotions um, because he's a manly man. You know, Charles Heston was a manly man. Um, so when Masal was dying at the show, uh, the director insisted on multiple takes. He wanted Ben Hur to show complete indifference to his dying of his former friend, something that uh, Charlton Heston was hard to deliver. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, yeah. Because he kind of got that feeling like, eh, you're dying. We, good for you. We don't care. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, I mean, it's a difficult task to be asked to be vulnerable on film. Like, right. Especially, in, and especially going back even that time. You're like, you're not, you know, you're not allowed to be vulnerable as a man's man. You know, and uh, in an older context, and even now it's still difficult. Well, not only that, but... Um, they said that Heston wouldn't cry. He couldn't. Anytime you see Ben Hur cry, he always covers his face or buries his hands. You never actually see the emotion on his face. <laughs> yeah, that's one way to get around it. Um, of course, the Terrence talked about this about the, the dummies they used uh, between the stuntman and the dummies that they had kneeling. It looked like that guy really got ran over. You yeah. know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I was. There's it a looked through. Yeah. So. This is really crazy, and this is one of the things I was that most shocked me about this film is. The shot where Masala's body is being dragged behind his own chariot was tried first with a dummy, but it was unconvincing. It was decided to have the chariot pull Stephen Boyd along the ground at high speed, so a steel pan molded to his body was fabricated to protect him. In spite of this precaution, Boyd suffered skin burns and some permanent scarring. That's I mean, not surprising. He has permanent scarring because how brutal that has oh. been. I mean, like you're like, hey, you. Like, you know, the reason it's called sandpaper. You're on sand. Like you're gonna get burned. Well, you had to. Uh, <laughs> you know, know that that's that's the thing you got to do in one take, and hopefully you don't need another. <laughs> yeah, yeah. man, well, someone out there is having a seriously bad day right yeah, now. That's what I'm saying, man. <laughs> Chariot number two has crashed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I believe that's the fire department. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Roof is on fire. So here, here's a, a really fascinating thing. So we know it was only a couple months before, you know, the box office came out for that year. And a big reason why this was able to jump so far ahead of all the other movies and make as much as it did is for the initial 35 millimeter release. That means, you know, regular theatrical release. Uh, in order to meet the terms of the exhibition contract, exhibitors had to increase ticket prices for the special event presentation. So basically, they raised their ticket prices, uh, some more than double the standard admission prices, yeah. and uh, some even charged different pricing based on the time of day where the seats were located and everything. And uh, d- But despite the expensive ticket prices, audiences still were rushing to get to this movie and the domestic and international grosses reportedly came in more than 10 times the filled staggering production cost as you guys know was was quite a lot so despite them you know doubling the ticket prices people were still watching the movie um another memorable scene in this movie because basically ben-hur wins a cherry race masala ends up he's he's either going to die or he's going to be permanently paralyzed 
Well, uh, it, well, either die or lose his legs. Legs, more right? Than likely, yeah. Well, like, like, well, yeah, paralyzed. Yeah, also, like, well, paralyzed implies you still have him. Well, <laughs> I mean, he, could he, probably, was, he was probably going to have him amputated. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then some more stuff happens that we won't give away the rest of the movie because something happens with because another underlying of this story is that Ben Hur's mom and sister have been released from prison, but they are lepers and they were sent to a leper colony, and. Um, and his Ben Hur's is she his wife or his, his former now, girlfriend well, is now his significant other. Right. I don't think they ever did they ever explicitly get married in the film. I don't, I don't remember. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, she knows, mm-hmm. and That's, she has been taking them food and water and stuff. Yeah. And he's like, why didn't you move her down here? You know. Yeah, yeah. But we won't. I'm not going to go into that. That's a whole another can of worms yeah, we could yeah. open up. <laughs> <laughs> a whole another yeah. hour. Um, so just some stuff at the end. Um, the the guy that played uh, the the director was so taken by the actor Remington Olmsted who plays the Decorian soldier who denies Ben her water on the slave drive, no water for you. Um, discovered that, that the actor had casually been replaced during the shoot. He demanded Olmsted be found and returned at whatever cost. It wasn't too hard. Claude Heater, who played Christ, was a regular at Olmsted's restaurant room all occasion, so he went to go get him and I guess bring him back. Um, they, the the line "no water for him" was on the set a catchphrase for the remainder of the shoot. When everybody made a mistake, one of the server uh, several actors or the crew members would shout "no water for him." So every time Terrence <laughs> makes a mistake on the podcast, now it's "no water for Terrence." No, no water for him. <laughs> um, over fifty thousand people were involved in making of the film, including three hundred sixty five speaking parts in the main uh, cast. So th- there's that. Uh, there was no wrap-up party after the shooting of Ben-Hur, probably because they were all too tired or sick or didn't want to do it. <laughs> Just, I want to be done. Yeah. I want to move on. <laughs> um, we talked about that. Ben-Hur generated another $20 million from merchandising, including books, toys, candy, perfume, neckties, jewelry, gowns, chariot-shaped tricycles, and Ben-Hur and... Been his bath towels. <laughs> Actually, at the museum, we even saw some. Uh, it was uh, we saw a container of allspice and I believe yeah. a dried basil. So. Yeah, <laughs> really early in on the like you know, uh, these, uh, and they sell kind of t-shirts kind of and coffee mugs that says "Been her done that." Yeah. So I bought my dad the coffee mug. So very classic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the been war her the tale of Christ now in t-shirts. <laughs> now in t-shirts. Been her the flamethrower. <laughs> been her the hat. I'm like what? Uh, the wardrobe uh, had over uh, warehouse contained over eleven thousand costumes, including some one thousand suits of armor, which is really cool because we, if you see on our Facebook page, we posted a picture of one of the extras in the uh, Roman armor. Yeah, Halloween's uh, around, around the corner, guys. <laughs> silk for one of Benhurst's costumes came from Thailand. Ten thousand Italians were employed for filming. The sculptor shop employed two hundred skilled artists to turn out statues, potteries, and friezes, whatever those are. I'm not very cultural inclined. What's a what's a freezy? A freezy? It's not them it's things you freeze in the <laughs> icy pop, popsicle. That's why I like a freeze. Yes. That's when I tell myself it is. Uh, <laughs> Frank Thuring, uh, Thuring had the odd distinction of playing both Pontius Pilate in this film and Herod Antipas in King of Kings for his next film. So with that, I think um, we're going to go ahead and say what we think of this movie, and then we'll throw in the interview. So Terrence, we'll start off with you. What did you think of Ben-Hur overall? It's long. It, was, it, oh my <laughs> it, is, it is a long movie, and I was glad for the intermission. I actually just paused and watched it the next day because well, it's a good movie. Don't get me wrong. Um, but it it's... Uh, 
it's a chore. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, a long movie. For sure. It is a commitment. That's a better word for it. Yeah, it's quite the commitment. Um, is this your first time seeing it? It is my first time seeing it. Uh, and no, it was, it, it's a it's a really well told story. Like it's it's a well written story. And at some point, I'll tell myself I'll read the book and then hopefully read it. But more than likely, I won't. But <laughs> I'll try. Uh, uh, put it on our backlogs that are forever yeah, growing and never a forever backlog of everything. Uh, <laughs> but no, it, it was it was a very well told story. Very well filmed. Um, and as far as you know. Uh, Movies with a uh, religious context, and I, I think this one ranks the highest of all the ones I've seen. It's it's a really good film with that, you know. Uh, it's got those religious tones. Um, it's it's the best one I've seen. It's just a really well told story, and it's it's interesting because it's not even like the forefront of it. It's just you know that ever so changing presence that's not the focal point of the movie, but it's but it's there. Yeah, but, and that's very interesting. Um, and, and it's fascinating, uh, but yeah, no, it's it's a it's a really good movie. I enjoyed watching it, um, and uh, that's 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 what I have for it. I, I'd say it is a must watch for those who enjoy watching, you know, film that changed film in some way. And in this one, it did uh, it, not only with what it did with the seventy millimeter prints, but um, you'll hear it in the interview that we have uh, after this. Um, it also brought film to the forefront of Los Angeles and made that the focal point of film instead of some other locations that could have very well possibly been the focal point of film um, instead of L.A. And uh, if it's also a must-see um, if you just like watching religious movies. Um, this one is a must-watch if you haven't seen it. Uh, I would say it's a must-watch just for the chariot race, yeah, if nothing for the else. Race, that yeah. is one of the greatest cinematic moments in probably movie history. And it's it's well, well that's like it's like 15, 20 minutes of just that non-stop race. action. Yeah, <laughs> people getting run over, people <laughs> getting it's destroyed. It's really good. I like the it's, guys that come a, out with the little stretcher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it's, it's unfortunate what they had to do to get the scene done, but I mean, what's been done is done. So. You know, yes, yeah. but it's like it. one thing. Like no one's even like no filmmakers even competing to kind of top that scene in a practical way at all. Yeah, nor the, nor should they necessarily. But it is still amazing to see a scene that clearly had so much work and risk and cost put into it. You know, and I mean, it's really a, a quarter of your budget. Oh yeah, a quarter of your budget just for a one scene for what a fifteen a tenth yeah, of the film, fifteen <laughs> minutes of uh, you know, in a three hour movie. Yeah, yeah. So it's incredible. So uh, all right, Kyle. Terrence gave us his. Give us your thoughts. I'm gonna air, I'm gonna echo a lot of Terrence's um of you know uh, opinion there, where I think this is probably you know a lot of people will have um their kind of favorites in like faith based cinema with uh specifically about um faith based uh fiction story or not, not fiction yeah. necessarily, but like Last Temptation of Christ or Passion of the Christ or films of those kind of natures which um, deal with the historical nature of the biblical stories, and I think Ben Hur kind of uh, by far is my favorite in that category of being like a film I like to watch. Like, you know, like Ten Commandments is a really good story of Moses. Like those films are also, they have their own great qualities, but Ben-Hur is by far just an amazing film on its own right. Um, even outside of its religious context and with its religious context, it 
far um, is the king of that that category. So I think this is a must watch for all film buffs. Exactly. And uh, yeah, and especially for people who like historical fiction, it's worth watching. And people who have a religious persuasion, uh, simply in the Christian and Jewish face, um, it's a must watch for them. I think it's a great film. And that, that's one thing I, I do want to add is um, you don't necessarily have to you know be one of faith to enjoy the movie. Yeah, no, I, I think the film is completely enjoyable. Like, even if you're not, you're like, it's not, it's, you know, it's not necessarily a uh, a movie of preaching, but nearly a telling of a story that is uh, yeah. known very much. And that, uh, you know, it, the matter of faith is how you believe the the, the the truthfulness of the story or the, or the meaning or purpose of uh, faith and God and divinity and all those kind of things, which is our, which is like, you know, deeply personal thing for many people in their own lives. So we exactly. can start on that. But uh, I found it highly enjoyable. Jimbo, how did you feel about Man, this? Man, it's a great movie. Um, <laughs> I like all those epic movies like that, dude. I like the same commandments. I like Gone with the Wind. I like, I like the movies where you have the overture at the beginning and you have the intermission and just the way they're filmed. You don't see, I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like they're vibrant in colors and it's just, you get more out of the characters because of their facial expressions and the situations they're in. And Charlton Heston nailed it in this one. I really liked him. I really liked Masala. I thought he did a really fantastic job in this. Oh yeah. Everybody in this did a great job. Um, to me, I've seen it multiple times. It's, it had been a long time since I had watched it. If you have three and a half hours, three three hours forty minutes, <laughs> which is not a guarantee nowadays. No, if you, <laughs> no, but, I know, right? but, but but I mean, if you break this down into Those half hour acts, or even yeah. half hour or the three acts we talked about, yeah, uh, it'd be easier to swallow the movie. You know, what I mean, and the thing is, it is it's interesting to see a movie that is set at biblical times, but not focused on the biblical narrative. Of, of Christ, you know, I mean, he was in the the background, but you get a visual of what was happening around the time of Christ. That's, okay, like you you feel how the world changes, changing around with the birth of Christianity in this film, and like around Ben Hur, and like Ben Hur is almost like this outside observer of the birth of Christianity right. in this film. So that's why I think it actually resonates with Fable Pierce because like it's a, it's a it's a movie about in his own way finding Christ in his own right. way. Well, yeah. that and, and you also see the the hatred the Romans and the Jews have for each other and why. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you see a lot of the history of that side too. So I really enjoy this movie. I think everybody should see it if you have time. Exactly. It is in the top 100 movies yeah. for a reason. Yeah, yeah. But especially like, I, I, and also I think like with films such as like this movie with like the intermission and the and the prelude and all those kind of things, like it gives it a sense of formality that this is an event that you are expected to be part of as well. Um, like it's kind of a thing that's kind of lost in even big films nowadays where it doesn't feel like. Like, this almost feels like you're going to a special event, like a party or something like that, or like a formal gathering to watch this film. Whereas uh, uh, new films, which are also amazing on the right, instead feel like a celebration, which is going to happen regardless if you're there or not. (laughs) And and how good was that overture? That been her theme is amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's striking. It, it, it demands your attention, right. even like when like we are showing you it's, nothing because you are hearing. It just it starts off just dun dun dun, and yeah. then then it starts going into the you know later on it starts going into the the lovely yeah. thing. And then you go back to yeah. the, the 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 awesomeness. Yeah. In modern verge, it didn't have to go that hard, but it did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, they didn't. That was another thing. Is just this this movie really nailed it and it really deserved all of the awards it got as far as sound production and music production excellent uh, they really went all out with the movie right were there some casualties along the way yes I mean we can't deny that that there were horses killed and maybe some of the way the people were cheated we don't know films that uh, are all they, they even had they even had yeah. like a, a, a 
like a makeshift hospital set up where you know people go in there and rest and all that because the, just the grueling heat and the, the the scheduling man it was crazy hmm. so uh with that being said you know how we feel i think we're going to go ahead and add the interview with uh, larry parlberg from who is the director of the general lou wallace study museum uh right here so hope you enjoy it and we'll be back right after this all right, guys, we're back with the Tragedy of Sin podcast, and we are live on location at the General Lou Wallace Museum and Study in Crawfordsville, Indiana. And our tour guide, Larry, what was your last Parlberg. name? Parlberg. has decided to sit down with us and answer some questions and maybe give you guys some uh, history on Lou's life and some facts and stuff that uh, from Ben-Hur, um, joined by Terrence and Kyle as well. Hello. We are here. Hello. If we have any questions, uh, Larry has agreed to answer them. So, Larry. Well, make something up. Yeah. <laughs> you can lie <laughs> with the best you, of You won't know the difference. You're <laughs> correct. <laughs> All right, Larry. So, the first thing that stuck out to me when we sat down and did the tour was that uh, General Lou Wallace did so much in his life. Um, if, if I could even accomplish a tenth of what he did, I mean, he was a painter, he was a writer, he was. Musician. Uh, inventor. Um, <laughs> a little general, yeah, yeah so. a little general in there, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but you know, to actually be hand selected by Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if you want to go into a little bit about that, and then we'll get into uh, his writings and stuff. So, well, Lou, um, I don't know if he would qualify as an alternative learner uh, in to, by today's terms. Fascinated by different things and all self-taught, he was not gifted in the classroom at all. I'm sure teachers from Western Indiana were thrilled when he didn't show up for class, but he was very curious about things. And so very self-directed, very self-taught, fascinated by the military from a very young age. His dad, David, who was an early governor of Indiana, was actually also an early graduate of the West Point Military Academy. And so Lou was fascinated by his father's military training and career as a child. Um, Some of the earliest drawings we have by Lou are of military kinds of things based on his dad's um, going off to the Black Hawk War. So Lou, if he found something that was of interest to him, he would do it. He would figure it out. He All of his art that he did was self-taught. His music was all self-taught. He played the violin. Um, at a young age, he got very interested in the history of Spain and Mexico. And here's a kid in 1840, Indiana. He teaches himself Spanish. And so by the time he was a young teen, he was bilingual, which, you know, you look back at Indiana at that era... It's very atypical. It's very unusual. Virtually unheard of for, especially that era, especially yeah, like, even now, era. it's unusual for a kid to self-teach themselves in the language. Yeah, he just, um, and it, it turned out to be a very good thing for Lou to be able to speak Spanish because he did fight in the Mexican War as an as a 18, 19-year-old. And then later in life, he became a governor of the New Mexico Territory and was one of the very early, if not the first, federal appointee to that territory that could speak the language. And it turned out to be a very useful thing. So lots of things that happened in Lou's life that he, he dealt with, that he taught himself, uh, turned out to have lasting impact and were very beneficial to him. Um, so basically, if he was interested in it, he would find a way to do it. If he wasn't, then the world didn't need it. I mean, he was pretty black and white about stuff like that. Um, he struggled with math. Not so much with math, but with algebra. Um, things like that. He just was a very hands-on, kinetic kind of learner and taught himself. And that's how he got through life. And it turned out he was very lucky. He had a stepmother who embraced that and helped encourage him to learn in his own way because he obviously was not able to learn in the classroom. So that turned out to be a very helpful thing to have a stepmother that understood him. So um, also while the film we were watching, we also noticed that he uh, encountered Billy the Kid. Mm -hmm. Um, 
if you want to go into a little bit of detail about that too, which I thought was very fascinating. Well, he did. Um, we know of one secret meeting that he had with Billy the Kid, but there are some letters of correspondence back and forth, and those survived. They're um, primarily down at the Indiana Historical Society down on Ohio Street. Um, when Lou was appointed as territorial governor by the Hayes administration, New Mexico was a very dangerous place. What was The Lincoln County Wars were going on. There was some concern that even another civil war might break out out west because it was incredibly violent. Uh, Susan, Lou's wife, wrote several times that she was more worried about his life in New Mexico than any time during the civil war. It was just incredibly violent. Um, so Lou was sent to New Mexico for several reasons, but one of the reasons was because he was a very trusted person. And the Hayes administration felt that if anybody could get both sides of the story and begin to find a way to reconcile this violence, it might be Wallace. And he actually did pretty good at toning things down and getting the sides to kind of step back and, and calm the action. And Billy the Kid was one of the... Um, hired gunslingers for one of the sides, and so Lou entered some private negotiations with Billy the Kid to get testimony that was needed. And um, it was a complicated situation, and Billy the Kid ultimately, um, on the second go-around, did not perform as he promised, and that led to um, Lou Wallace signing Billy the Kid's death warrant. Mm. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah, it strikes me that yeah, as a looking at his history, like he was remarkably self-driven and remarkably lucky in his own way. Where it seems yeah. like a right place at the right time. Whether and you... some of that was just by the nature accidental, but some of it, Lou positioned himself to be where something was going to happen, and he did. He was a very um, outside the box thinker mm -hmm. when he was coming back from the Mexican War in eighteen. 46, 47, whenever it was, and the men were coming back from Mexico, a lot of them went through New Orleans. That's how the U.S. government got people shipped back. And most of the guys that were in New Orleans were doing New Orleans things. Yeah. Bourbon yeah. Street <laughs> and other places. Um, Lou, by the accounts that he left, instead went to public lectures. He's a 19-year-old guy. <laughs> and he is going to public lectures, and he said, I, and they tended to be very famous preachers sermonizing and he said I didn't care what they were saying but I wanted to watch how they used their words and how they moved the audience what 19 year old boy is figuring that out what, very atypical very, yeah. out, you know, very unusual thought process but again it turned out to be very helpful to him in his later life so he was always um, basically strategizing not only in military affairs but also in his personal life so um as you know, we're doing uh, the 1959 version of mm -hmm. Ben or the movie. Yeah. Um, but something, I, and I knew about the 1925 version, but there was actually a 1907 version that I didn't know about. Yes. So if you want to go in and talk about the 1907 version and all that happened there, the 1925, then finally what Hollywood called the 1959 sure. version. Yeah. So. Well, there's actually been seven filmed versions over the years. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, the 07 one is. If you have about 12 minutes to spare out of your life, you can Google Ben-Hur 1907 and watch it. It is an extravaganza, not. Um, but it turned out to be a very interesting film and very important in the history of film because the studio that filmed the 1907 version did not have permission. Mm -hmm. The Wallace family had copyrighted and trademarked Ben-Hur. So Lou and Susan's son, Henry, their only child, sued, saying, I didn't say you could do this. 
And he talked to the Broadway producers, because Ben-Hur was running on Broadway at that point as a stage show. He talked to the book publishers. Nobody had given permission. In 1907, movie studios did not ask for permission. They just filmed stuff. It was a new industry. They just did it. Rolling the dice. Hopefully they didn't step on any toes. Yeah, they didn't care. I mean, there was no regulations. But Henry said, no, it's our product, and you didn't get permission. And he had protected it through different legal maneuvers. So they duked it back and forth because the movie studio sued Henry and said, we have just made this extravagant film and it's going to drive people to the theater and it's going to drive book sales. So you owe us money for marketing. And they continued to fight it. It finally landed in the United States Supreme Court in 1911. And the court agreed with Henry. And it's one of the early times that the federal government has protected intellectual property rights. And it's still precedent setting. So it's called the Ben-Hur decision of 1911. And Henry not only won the case, but he won a lot of money. So for the family, it was a very successful venture. Um, but it did sour Henry on the movies. And he turned down all sorts of movie offers until he saw Birth of a Nation. Mm. And then he began to think, well, the movies are getting more sophisticated, and maybe we can um, do something with this film. And Henry was also smart enough to know that the... He knew copyright was going to be expiring and he was going to lose rights to the book. So that's one of the reasons he began negotiations in the late teens and early 20s. Right, and so then uh, he actually sold the rights for the 1925 version. You said around 1922? About 1921, 1922, he actually settled things. And the 25 film in terms of Los Angeles and Hollywood history is the most important film far and away. The 59 is a tremendous, you know, record-breaking film and certainly turned the industry around for MGM. It saved the studio. But the 25 film changed the industry. It changed. Up until that movie was released, there were very viable studios in New York, Florida, and Chicago. 25 comes out, and within a few years, those studios are gone. They realize we cannot compete with what they can do in Los Angeles. It didn't make money for the studio that became MGM because it was horrendously expensive. It was the most expensive silent movie ever filmed, and it shows. And it had the difficulty of coming out in 25. Well, two years later, it's talkies. So within a couple years, it was dated. It was re-released in 31, and that's when MGM started making their money back, and they made a profit on it. but it was an extravaganza, and the world had never seen a film of that scale when it came out. And it's a fun movie to Google to read about because you can read for pages and pages of things that went wrong. From the time Henry inked the deal and left, the production just was cursed. <laughs> that, was, that was a true thing we've definitely noticed in our initial research, too, where we felt like, you know, like we could spend days or hours doing research on this, and even then we feel like we're just barely scratching the surface oh, even it, in this podcast yeah. right here. You know, it started you know, production in Italy. It was the last time a woman was in charge of a major Hollywood production until recently. Decades. You know, in, the last, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in the last 15 years, women were not part of the Hollywood power structure. Mm-hmm. In 1925, June Mathis, who had discovered Rudolph Valentino, she was put in charge of it, and for different reasons, it all fell apart, and she was taken out off the production along with everybody else except for one guy, and um, she continued to have a career for another few years, but that was the last time, other than maybe Mary Pickford is arguably a powerful woman because United Artist, but... Um, 
after that, women were not part of the Hollywood decision-making team. Um, so Ben Hur played a role in that. The ethical treatment of animals. Ben yeah, Hur yeah. There were there were some bad things going on with that's, horses. There's a common recurring topic in our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> also in the '59 version. And in was, the '59 yeah. was better mm-hmm. um, because the ethical treatment of animals had become part of the Hollywood structure by '59, but it was not in '25. Um, there were issues with the Hayes Code had not yet come around the self censorship. Yeah, mm-hmm. and Ben Hur tended to get a pass because it was such a work of art, and it had such a strong religious theme that people kind of looked the other way. But of the time too, yeah, yeah. many religious films kind of got away from censorship. Yeah, way. yeah, but it was one of the films where people in Hollywood started saying, "We've got to be careful because we have pushed the envelope as far as we can." Mm-hmm. And if we don't censor ourselves, other people will. So the Hayes Code came along a few years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even outside of the, um, the the film, we're specifically focusing on the you know the '59 version. It's very easy to see that all uh, seven versions now are really a good um, a touchstone for each period of film history. Actually. They are. I mean, you know, major points, anyways. Yeah. The, the 2016 film, which is a great bit of acting, if you're listening, Jack Houston. Um, <laughs> but they played with the storyline and. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to compete with fifty nine. It just, yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, yeah. So could, I, how I, how could you possibly follow up? Answer really can't. You can't. And I, so I don't know what their yeah. thought processes were. There was a twenty ten version that ended up becoming kind of a movie of the week on television. It was filmed in in Europe and Canada, um, and you can again. I don't remember the actors. There's some that were some significant actors, and not to pick on them, but you can kind of tell the day they ran out of money. You know, <laughs> like sort of all of a sudden it changes. All produ- um, you know, production is always difficult for yeah, these kind so, of things, so I don't begrudge them for it. Yeah. No, and so that's where you've got 25, which is stunning in its own way, dated but stunning, and 59, which, what do you, there's, what can you do? Hollywood yeah. will never be able to produce films like that again with, without CGI. Yeah, for, for better yeah. or worse, in many respects, yeah. it's just impossible to reproduce a film like that. Yeah. You yeah. Know. So you said that... Um, Henry was that Henry was the son. sold the rights and to, to the book or whatever in 1922. Two. Okay, we'll yeah. Did they did, did he put anything in there for the family to receive royalties for anything mm-hmm. else from further yeah. production? That was the last time the family saw any benefit from Ben Hur was 22 when the rights were sold away because um, part of that was um, the there had been a Broadway stage production mounted in 20 in 1899. 21 years it is later, it's still running, still making money, and one of the requirements was that stage play go away. The MGM studio did not want anything to compete with the movie, so the plays had to be taken apart. Um, the book was went into the public domain. It, it was over 40-something years Just old. Just about to ask that, yeah. <laughs> so um, the sale of the rights to produce Ben-Hur was the last time the, money, the family saw any benefit from Ben-Hur. Hmm. And uh, also in the movie that we saw, you said that the Ben Hur book has never been out of print. Never. That is amazing, right there yeah. on its own too. Yeah. Well, so and if you print. look at the longevity, um, Uncle Tom's Cabin had been the first bestseller, really, and it came out in the 1850s. Thirty years later, it's still a bestseller until Ben Hur hits its stride, and within about six or seven years, Ben Hur has eclipsed Uncle Tom's Cabin. Ben-Hur became the best-selling book of the 19th century. The only thing that outsold it was the Bible. It continued to be the best-selling novel until Gone with the Wind in 1936, I believe. And so if you look at you know American culture, slave stories are what people are buying. 
Uncle Tom's Cabin, Ben-Hur, has a significant theme of slavery in, in, in the um, Middle East in the time of Jesus and then Gone with the Wind. And so um, you know, it, it's a powerful story, mm-hmm. powerful narrative. Truly. Agreed. Um, why don't you go ahead and tell everybody about the uh, museum and study here if they want to come see where you're located at. Okay. If you have a website, uh, email address or anything. Um, we that way have they can... a web. Just Google BenHur.com and we should come up. Um, or you can do General Lou Wallace Study Museum is our formal name. And when Wallace became enormously wealthy, thanks to Ben-Hur, he continued to live on property that he had been received with through his wife's family in the 1860s. But he built a brand new building, a private study, and that's what we have available for the public to tour. It was kept after Lou died in 1905 and Susan in 1907. Their son Henry, who inherited the estate, kept it kind of as a shrine to his father. And once he died, his his son, Lou's grandson, Lou Jr., also kept it kind of as a shrine to the family. Um, During the 30s, it fell onto hard times, and a group of women in Crawfordsville, it's always the women, (laughs) a group of women in Crawfordsville decided that it needed to be saved, and so they raised money and bought it, and after all of the paperwork was settled, they gifted it to the city of Crawfordsville, so we are technically owned by the city of Crawfordsville and been run as a museum since the early 1940s. Um, 99% of what you see is original to Lou. We do have, we tend to keep out stuff regarding his Civil War career, and then we always have out some stuff for Ben-Hur as well. Very nice. So here's a question I had real quick. Okay. Um, I, I know you guys, you know, you try to get uh, stuff that was connected to Lou mm-hmm. um, as you can. Have you ever tried to get, like, the copies of the film, of some, maybe some of like, the original films, of, as far as, like, the film reels go? Or No, we haven't tried to do any of that, partly because for particularly really old film like the 25, you have yeah. to be very careful about how it's, what it's made out of That's so it doesn't catch fire or blow yeah. up. Yeah. Um, and it's out there and it's available. So as long as the information is accessible, we're happy with that. We have had some movie props and some things come to us. Um, we don't have it out right now, but for instance, the 2016 movie during the chariot race, Jack Houston has been her. And um, we were able to purchase the outfit that he wore during the chariot race, mm. which is really cool. So we've got his tunic Very and his nice. and stuff. So. Yeah. Um, we have stuff from the 25 movie, we have stuff from the stage play, 25 movie, and then some stuff from the 59 movie. And if stuff comes out that's reasonable, we're always keeping an eye open. We don't really have acquisition funds, but yeah. things have come this way through the generosity of others, and um, we're happy to share those. Yeah, so do you, do you just rotate the uh, stuff you have for the museum? We do change some of the exhibits. Now, the main space is kept largely was during Lou's time. We do have a small space at the back where we do rotate things, and we have right now we have Ben Hur stuff out. Right. Um, in a couple of years, we may mount another exhibit here in the Carriage House, which is another property that Lou owned. It's kind of our interpretive center, and we're thinking in a couple of years about doing another exhibit on Ben Hur. In which case, we'll probably put Civil War stuff out in that rotating exhibit. Very yeah. nice. You ever thought about uh, doing a whole another building, building another building on the property, or not so much on these grounds? Partly because this is one of the forty national historic landmarks in the state of Indiana, mm-hmm. and which is the highest designation the federal government can give to a historic site. So we're kind of restricted on what we do on the property itself. Understandable. Yeah. yeah, we want it to look like it did when Lou was here. So you, when you're walking it or in the study, you can feel like Lou is, you know, just stepped around the corner and so that's our our goal um there are other places in, in Crawfordsville some days 
we may do yeah. something. I think that would be I think I've noticed about you know any prospective visitors from this podcast. I'll be like, this is definitely a first and foremost a Lou Wallace museum and yeah. Ben Hur. Cast a long shadow over it. To be polite. Well, and we're fortunate in Crawfordsville. We've got four really outstanding museums. And for a small town, we've got the oldest um, rotating jail in the nation is oh, wow. just up the block. <laughs> Henry Lane, who was Lou's brother-in-law, Mr. Lane and Mrs. Wal- Mrs. Lane and Mrs. Waltz were sisters. He was a U.S. senator from Indiana um, during the Civil War. He put Abraham Lincoln's name into nomination. You know, so his home is open to the public. And then we have the oldest Carnegie Museum in the state of Indiana is open as a kind of a museum of Montgomery County history. So all within walking distance. It's just a, it's a really nice uh, place for people that want to, you know, an easy drive from Indianapolis, an easy mm-hmm. drive from Bloomington or Terre Haute or not too bad from Chicago. Yeah. Um, if people would like to spend an easy day uh, touring historic sites and great art galleries and great shopping. Nice little town. And the breakfast company is pretty good too. We the just think <laughs> very so, good. Uh, um, yeah. Well, Kyle, do you have any more questions or statements or anything you'd like to ask? I'm, only general thing that like, we're incredibly thankful for your time and giving us this information is an absolutely uh, <laughs> increase the value of this podcast, especially. Uh, yeah, it's not often we get the opportunity to actually visit uh, a site that has historical value to the film we're covering, or usually it's too far. Um, it's something that we have to like pre-plan ahead of time for when we look this up we were like wow it's an hour away it's easy drive yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah get off 74 like, and come yeah and this is the first time we get to you know speak to someone so knowledgeable about the subject because our our history is usually what we clean from internet from internet mm-hmm. movie database or wikipedia in so many cases and it's nice to have someone speak to who can you know clearly understands a lot more of the history of this matter all right we also have my dad here dad do you have any questions or anything you'd like to ask <laughs> larry while we're here <laughs> no? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Said, no. We're um, so if you're in the area or if you're even in the Midwest and you'd like a nice, it's a very serene property. Like it's just yeah. peaceful. Um, there's lots of flowers and plants. They have some trees they're going to be cutting down, but they're hopefully <laughs> to replace them. Yeah. But it's beautiful. Uh, that that study, man, I'm telling you, I could live in there. Positively yeah. gorgeous. Never come back out. Yeah. <laughs> I think what's nice about it, uh, just, you know, really enjoying going to museums and stuff. It's, it's quiet and it, it's easy enough to, you know, book an appointment to get a tour where you can just enjoy and take in everything you're seeing without sort of any of the hustle and bustle of like other you know mm-hmm. tour stuff and you, you can at the same time this place is good enough to it deserves to be busy in exactly no for sure <laughs> we're very fortunate because Lou wrote a lot about himself he was an author and very proud of himself and other people wrote about Lou so we can give people a very personal interpretation of how he went through life and sometimes historic sites don't have that advantage that we do do you offer tours to schools oh yeah absolutely. and is there a, a, a cap a number that you're allowed to... if we get more than about 40 we split them into groups okay. so we try to keep groups you know 20 25 and sadly in the days of covid things get a little complicated but, right. but we can always work around stuff all right well i think that's about it that's all i have do you have anything that's all I have. I Thank you for coming. Oh, oh, he does have something. There's so much more about Lou's life than just being her. Oh, well. I recommend you to come up here and take this tour. Uh, a man of many talents, been many places, and it's very, very interesting. And he was a painter. My dad's a painter, so that he, once he seen that, it was game over. You know, yeah. so a man out of his own heart. <laughs> so, Larry, we thank you for your time and appreciate you. And we'll definitely put this out. We'll put stuff on the Facebook page and everything for people sure. to learn. Yeah, keep so us links. We can pictures. make it to ours too. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, 
we'll send an email or something to you about where you can find the podcast or okay. whatever you want to listen to it or whatever. So, well, uh, we'll go ahead and end this recording now so we can get out of here. Yeah. All right. All thanks, right. thanks, thanks for joining us. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you for coming. All right, so there you have it. That was Larry from uh, the General Lou Wallace Study Museum. A lot of interesting facts. And just before we close this up, Terrence Kyle, let me get your uh, opinions on this museum. Do you think people, if they're in the area, should go to it? Oh, and if did you're in you the enjoy area, it? We, we definitely go. If you're in the area, you have no excuse. You have to yeah. That, that's it. Especially Lou, if you've seen the movie. I just want to say something about Lou Wallace. This guy does so much with his life. Um, what we talked about with the interview didn't even cover half of it. I mean... He had uh, entanglement with uh, uh, with Billy the Kid. He had interactions with Billy the Kid. He was an attorney. President Abraham Lincoln actually wanted him, uh, asked for him personally to lead one of his things. I forgot where they where uh, Larry said, um, you know, he was uh, an attorney, an inventor, ambassador of Turkey, I believe. Uh, yeah, like yeah. That. yeah uh, he, became, he became an ambassador. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was a fisherman. He 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 taught himself how to play violin. You know, he taught himself how to paint. You know, as yeah. he sculpted. All this stuff, it was just ridiculous. So um, I not only suggest that you go visit this place, but if you um, – we also went to his grave site, which was monumental in itself. But uh, <laughs> look into it, not just for – not just have him known as the author of Ben-Hur. Lou, Lou, General Lou Wallace had a lifetime that me, Terrence, and Kyle combined would – any one thing he did would have been amazing. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. He he has he has a list of compliments that rivals whole cultures in so many ways. Right. Um. Uh. You know, like in a way, versus like you know, I I you know we can't speak necessarily to all the like the opinions of the area that he had or whatever like that. If he doesn't have something like you'd be like, oh man, that was a really bad belief even for the time. Maybe he has one of those. But regardless, he accomplished a lot over the course of his life, oh, which yeah. is just. And the guy had a moat around his his man cave. I mean, he had a moat around his man cave. Yeah, exactly. That sold it for me right there. Yeah, yeah, he's a man's man. (laughs) Well, uh, with that being said, this episode's gone on long enough. I think it's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And And cut. cut. Wow, that was terrible. Got that perfectly right. (laughs) 